0: you're listening to perspectives in parryville today my guest is vanessa hamilton a sexual health nurse educator and author In this episode, we chat about Vanessa's professional experience as a nurse and her various roles delivering professional development and educational workshops to a wide range of audiences, including doctors, healthcare workers, teachers and parents. Vanessa brings her experiences from human sexuality and reproductive nursing to outline that sex is much more than just a physical act or being male and female. It's about relationships, respect, diversity, reproduction, consent, pleasure, health and sexuality. Vanessa believes that teaching young people about sex and sexuality needs to be age appropriate, ongoing and use suitable language. Significantly, it doesn't have to be uncomfortable. On this point we talk about how parents and teachers might engage in everyday conversations with young people about human sexuality and other ideas outlined in her new book, Talking Sex, A Conversation Guide for Parents. Just so you're informed, as you might have guessed by now, we chat about potentially confronting topics, including those associated with child sexual abuse rates and sexual violence, as well as other less confronting topics, like pleasure, consent, and abstinence. Even the clitoris, the familiar bulb-shaped yet often misrepresented female organ, its sole function, pleasure, gets a mention. We explore how the word itself, sex, can often present challenges and obstacles when having conversations. We chat about some of the recurring parental concerns often coming from a social context of fear, shame, negativity, hushed tones, and the idea that this is unspeakable and we don't talk about it, often associated with this topic. Vanessa shares insights into her writing process and how she manages the potential overwhelm of information in this territory. Vanessa believes that human sexuality is at the heart of being human that young people deserve a better outcome through life and how this can be addressed with education at home and in the classroom. That is getting good information about sex, sexuality, respectful relationships and consent to be healthy, happy and well. Here's my conversation with Vanessa Hamilton. Really good to be speaking with you, Vanessa.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: So I'm very interested, and I'm, and I'm assuming our audience is interested as well. How did, you, how did we get to this point? Like, what, what, where did you come from? Where did you study? <laughs> what did you study? What are your interests? You know, what, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your background, essentially?
1: Sure. So I was a registered nurse who fell into sexuality education by accident, to be honest. How did that? Uh, I, was, I was newly registered and got the, packed the backpack and went off around the world. And when I was working in London and before that, I had thought to myself, how can I work in nursing and avoid night shift? <laughs> that was always something in my mind. Um, and I've ended up working in clinics during the day all the time. So somehow I achieved that. But I was backpacking in London and I did a nursing agency shift one day taking blood tests in a HIV clinic. Uh, in the early 90s. Now, that was a very interesting time to work in sexual health because uh, the AZT, the first medication to treat AZT, had just been introduced. Uh, In fact, in the big clinic I worked in, which was um, uh, at Westmead Hospital, um, Kobla Centre was... uh, We had 2,000 patients on the books. It was so busy. We had two wards and I saw all the AIDS-defining illnesses. I ended up working there for seven months. In that time, in those seven months, the AZT started working and we closed one of the wards. So there was less AIDS-defining illnesses, plenty of HIV. but So it was really interesting and I was just fascinated by it all. When I came back to Australia, I worked at Melbourne Sexual Health Centre, Australia's largest sexually transmitted infection clinic. Uh, And we were affiliated with Melbourne University there. So I became an educator at Melbourne Sexual Health Centre. I was always had a student in my room when I was a nurse because we did one-on-one consultations with patients. I ended up being the nursing manager there for five years and then I was teaching undergraduate um, uh, subjects in sexual health through Melbourne University. Doctors and nurses suddenly had to talk about sex and sexuality. I mean, they'd done it when they had to, but now they had to do HIV testing and suddenly this whole new world of them having to bring up sex and sexuality Was new to them. So I was teaching them how to have these conversations. And that's become my sort of uh, what I've been known for is how to have these conversations. 16 years there, then I worked in a large tertiary hospital as a clinical nurse consultant in sexual health, which was again a massive learning curve for me, helping people with spinal cord injury, cancer, brain injuries, all sorts of other illnesses and injuries, helping them with their sexual health. But 50% of my role was teaching health professionals, doctors, nurses, occupational therapists, physios, how to incorporate sexual health into the care of their patients, which wasn't happening very much. At the same time, I became a parent. Uh, I was on my third maternity leave uh, wondering, is there really a role? Do Is there really a, a, a job, a business I can make out of teaching um, teachers and parents how to have conversations with their kids? Because I'd been looking into child abuse prevention because I wanted to do that with my children and I was shocked how much it was lacking in schools and how much parents didn't know about it. And an interesting story happened. One of my kids, <clears throat> five years old, <clears throat> as I said, I was on maternity leave with a third. I was innocently brushing my teeth in the, in the bathroom and I got this question that I couldn't answer even though I was a sexual health expert. <laughs> And my five-year-old, if do you want to hear the question?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think, I think I know what it's going to be, but I do. But,
1: oh, well, it's in the book. My five-year-old said, mum, so this is just exactly when, you know how five-year-olds ask about how prime ministers pay for the roads and where does the sun go at night? You know, lots of questions. Mum, how does the man stop the wee from coming out when he's putting the seed in the vagina? It's
0: a great question.
1: Brilliant question. Completely floored me. <laughs> I I, th- I thought, well, so I'd done the whole how babies are created most commonly and all that sort of thing. Um, but he's asking about ejaculation and orgasm, and I didn't know how far to go with a five-year-old. It's just Where do I- Yeah, exactly. It was beyond <laughs> that. Um, first, qu- first thought I had was it's time for that renovation. Um, I need my own bathroom. And uh, second thought was why do the big questions always come up when my husband's not home? Why do I always have to answer them? With my best sexual health nurse's hat knowledge on, I said, he does a wee first, which is sort of not really correct, sort of. Well,
0: (laughs) it's in that realm though, you know. I think that's an appropriate response.
1: Five years later, I kid you not, he was 10 years old. I was preparing a presentation to do at his school for parents, and he said late at night and he's eating dinner and he'd been at sport, and he said, Mum, what's the first slide you used to get him in with? And I said, I'd been meaning to get his consent for using this story. And I said... I tell them about a five-year-old asking his mum, how does the man stop the wee from coming out when he's putting the seed in the vagina? And he said, I know, that's a great question. He does a wee first. Mm-hmm. He actually remembered. Anyway, we went on to have a 10-year-old conversation about how the brain's the most important sexual organ and it blocks off the bladder so only one fluid can come out, etc. So I started the business, Talking the Talk, Healthy Sexuality Education, to train teachers and parents However, schools started asking for a contemporary approach for their student education because many of the providers around at the time were leaving things out, not being inclusive, and were quite negative and not very positive. So I've had the privilege of teaching in schools from prep to year 12 for over seven years. COVID put a stop to that, so I've put it all online. I give the content to the schools, train the teachers, speak to the parents, and do a best practice whole school approach called virtual classroom.
0: Can I, can I? Um, I got a question that's just come to mind. Yes. Just, it's almost like over the years you've sort of like, um, it's sort of like you've organically folded into teaching. What can you tell us about that kind of the train the trainer type of territory, and then the kind of whole concept of teaching? Like, you know, what if what do you think you've learned? Because there are a lot of teachers. Well, I hope there's a lot of teachers that listen to these podcasts, what have you what have you learned about the the concept or the practice of of actually teaching and it's even like teaching adult learners just as a kind of an aside? Wow.
1: Teachers, I love teachers. <laughs> I just my favorite sessions are teaching teachers. Teachers are sponges. I just love that they are so keen to learn new information and this is new information to them that they can put into practice for the betterment of their children. So I'm mainly thinking of the primary school teachers in my head. I don't know, I'm good at talking. I've always loved teaching a topic that people love learning and I've been lucky because sexual health, most people have no baseline knowledge that's adequate or accurate. Um, I've learned that when I teach it to people, and I think teachers feed this back to me, the pleasure and the joy they get from the benefit that it gives to someone else uh, makes it all worthwhile, even when it's a difficult topic to talk about. Uh, yeah. The reward, the reward keeps me going. It has been organic, absolutely. It's a bit of a. I just love the teaching, and the more teaching I can do, the better.
0: Yeah. Also, I'm I'm impressed as long as, as well as other um, responses. Maybe of of um, you're kind of thrown in the deep end in the in the early nineties with you know HIV and it was a. Quite an acute, um, what's that word? Like kind of confronting time, and you kind of sound like you—you you were right in the middle of it.
1: Honestly, they couldn't. We couldn't always get staff to work in the HIV clinic. People were worried for me taking blood tests, and in fact, there wasn't medication to take if I got a needle stick injury, then like there is now. Uh, and the patients had really high viral loads of. Um, virus, for example, I was on the steep, the amount of steep learning curves I've had in my career, uh, I mean, it's always a curve going up, but it's had these massive mountains. So working in HIV in this, I was this little, you know, I'd worked in aged care in Melbourne, you know, for a year and a half, I was so naive to it all what at the time you said I was right in the thick of it it reminds me I was doing agency shifts as well and one weekend I was helping a couple who just come home with their baby because they hire nurses for things like that and they couldn't get a midwife and I said to the agency I'm not a midwife but anyway I got there and I was helping the father prepare some formula and he asked where I worked and I said I work in the HIV clinic and they actually asked me to leave the house
0: Wow,
1: they were prepared to spend the night, their first night with their baby at home, who they'd hired help with, it, rather than have me, who could be a risk of HIV to them. Hmm. So mm, fascinating. Yeah, so uh, think- it
0: is fascinating. Confronting unexpected, a whole yeah, whole how do you process that type of thing?
1: So I think I've been used to that sort of. um that doesn't surprise me, and I get those sort of pushbacks even today in 2023 from certain groups about sexuality education. Other yeah. steep learning curves have been in the classroom from little prep, grade five, I mean five-year-old children teaching me so much, which is why I wrote the first book, Hit Nalo, Find a Way on Consent. A little five-year-old, we'd been talking about hug-loving people and consent, and she's drawing her activity, and she said, I'm so glad you taught me about those hug- that hugging thing. I just hug anyone whenever I want to, and her little friend said, "Yeah, she does." And I just thought to myself, "We can teach consent to kids." And my co-author rang me that afternoon, and she said, "Would you like to write a children's book on consent?" And she could barely get the words out. And I'm like, "Please, yes."
0: <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. It's like boundaries, establishing boundaries, or but that it's for it's an at an age appropriate level for you know interactions. Or so, what tell us a bit about the. The development of that book, your first book?
1: So um, it was at the time of Me Too, um, consent education, thankfully, was about to be put on the table as compulsory in Victoria. Uh, There was a lot going on in the media um, and my co-author, Ingrid Laguna, who's a renowned children's author, wanted to write a book on consent and she'd seen me do a parent presentation at her children's school and... It had changed the way that she approached her parenting, and I get that a lot from people. Um, Not because of me, it's because of the content I give. Most adults have never had an adequate sexuality education. And we said, how are we going to write this consent information? What age? We didn't even know where we were going to start. And things change a lot with different, you're exactly right what you said before about age appropriateness is really important. So we picked the 8 to 12-year-olds. And I thought, what do I want those teenagers who are having non-consensual not pleasurable, not pleasant experiences. What did I want them to know from primary school? So they have embedded consent decisions to carry with them into their intimate encounters. And we picked, I've put together 13 topics of consent and we've turned them into an engaging chapter book with um, extended learning in the back. Ingrid was a teacher. She taught me so much. Teachers are just, one of the things in the book that she taught me to do was the word distill. So I had to distill down my message because I had no skills in writing, you know, content like this. And we got together and, put, and then in the back we've got extended learning, so there's writing prompts and that sort of thing about each topic and then a website full of resources um, and 13 lesson plans and nine videos for teachers on how to teach consent. And we are now a multi-award winner, having won two Educational Publishing Awards a few weeks ago for it. So Oh, very good. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, best um, best uh, so uh, overall primary school resource and overall and best primary school chapter book. Yeah.
0: So we're going to find out about your the the talking sex book in a minute. But what 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 led up to that book happening?
1: Talking sex book.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so I created in COVID a sixty four page PDF that I made on Canva. <laughs>
0: But oh, yeah, as you do. Yeah, happens every day. Ten,
1: my 10 years of notes, I just had to get out of my head into a resource for parents, and it's turned out to be an offering within my virtual classroom for parents. It's a resource for them. Uh, and then I had people, cyber safety people, promoting it at their sessions, and he said, we really need to be able to print this, and we tried to have a go at printing it, and it was all over the place because I made it on Canva. So I put it to a designer who'd also seen one of my parents' sessions. She said, do you mind if I mention you to a publisher? Publisher got in touch with me. Would you like to turn this into a book? How could I say no? <laughs> That's literally how it happened.
0: You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So you've written, I guess, a few books now. Did you, did you all have any idea that you were going to become an author?
1: Two books in two years and it's still like a dream. I'm very tired. <laughs> it was a challenge. I'm not going to lie. They were both intense. My poor family suffered. I had to keep a business running at the same time. But the content and the topic was so, so challenging uh to to write about when I'm not an author in theory. You, what's an author? So, you know, I'm not a I, I wrote blog posts and heaps of content for school classrooms. To but to put this together that's going to go out to the world and put it in the right order and say the correct thing and try not to offend people, which was impossible. Um, I relied heavily on the amazing star um publishing team and and the editor who did a brilliant job of working with me to get what it turned into.
0: Yep. So what, you've already mentioned you, you'd organised some of your ideas or a lot of your ideas, a lot of your content in Canva. But then when it comes to the, the job of writing a book, what, how do you start? Where do you, you know? Well, well
1: I've done hundreds and hundreds. I, can't, I don't i even know whether I've done a 1,000 parent presentations. And so I approached it like I approach my parent presentations because I have refined them to an hour and a half um, of sequential information to get the message across. Just like my sexuality education, I'm digressing a bit. I think it's a a big challenge for teachers, for example, to scaffold lessons in sexuality and not know what are the sort of softer bits you need to start first to scaffold up to the more difficult topics, and that's what I did with this book. And as you can see, I start with the evidence because I I just know what parents are thinking and what they're going to say, so the publisher said, tell us your story first and then go in with that evidence. And then it was breaking it down. There was so much I could have written. I was 9,000 words over in the first edit. And so that was one of the hardest things. I realized really this could have been three books. I could have broken it down into age groups. So at that point I had to say to myself, well, it's not. It's naught to 17, so focus in and just give the basics. Um, and then I just focused on the key topics that parents need to know at the moment and how to have, and every time I had to keep reminding myself how to have conversations with your kids. And, and when you're driven by the fact that you know that this helps parents actually have conversations with their kids and you know that absolutely the evidence of the benefits of that, um, that was helpful to try and tone down I keep the keep the each topic a bit shorter, and I had actually had one parent at a parent session ask for more for me to expand more on conception, for example. They felt that me just mentioning IVF um, as an alternative wasn't enough. So, and I had someone um, in my team who had worked in in um, in reproductive um, technology, so I did a little bit extra on that. And the key issue is that every child, one in twenty children, twenty children. are from some form of reproductive um, uh, technology so it's it's relevant and it's evolving so I needed to expand that a little bit so that's one example and the diversity in LGBTIQ content that was somewhat easy to write in a way because parents do not know enough and it's there's so much to tell them
0: So you've got like did you have just like thousands of word documents or you know, you probably didn't have scraps of paper, but, you know, how do you, like, I'm just imagining all this sort of information <laughs> everywhere, like, and I'm still, I feel overwhelmed by all that. I
1: was. I have what well, I have my own, it's called a topic library on Google Docs, and I've got folders, and there's about well, 25 folders, and in each of those is a Google Sheet with links <laughs> to articles and research and evidence. You can see in the back there's lots and lots and lots of links and research, and that was important to me. Um, I just ha- we, We're very good at spreadsheets. One of the, my team who works with me, um, Joanna, helped a lot, we, and she just said to me at the end, I can't believe that spreadsheet turned into that book. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no. It's, um, one of the things I kind of resonates is the idea that you kept in mind who is the audience, and you know, when you when design when one is designing learning, that's a really key. Like, what are you trying to teach? What What are the learning outcomes? And then who is the audience? And mm. then so, with that in mind, wh- how did you start to craft your sentences? Or you know,
1: well, I know what the parents' concerns are. I know what they've picked up the book because they tell me the same thing at every parent session, Mark. Every parent session I could rattle off. What are they? Okay, I'll give you a few, for example. Um, The first one is they say children will lose their innocence if we talk about this. But just to go back one little step first, just remember that parents are coming to this having learnt the hushed tones, this is unspeakable, don't talk about this. We are all carrying that around in our heads and what we are carrying around and in our heads about sex and sexuality is not relevant to simple children's situations or education in front of us. So pulling that back a bit, they'll lose their innocence. Well, that implies that learning about sex, sexuality, um, respectful relationships, consent bodies, and, uh, et cetera, is taboo, shameful, harmful, or wrong, and it's not. They'll lose their innocence if something happens to them that they didn't want to happen or they didn't know about. Now, the evidence is, and the other things they say is, I haven't got the language. I don't know what to say. What if I sexualise them? What if I say something wrong? They all say that. My take-home message to them is, ask yourself this question, parents. Who do you want to be the main person who delivers this topic to your child? Who do you want to be the person who tells them about sex, sexuality, respect relationships and consent? And the light goes on. You see the light go on their head. Well, I want it to be me. I'm like, well, that's not happening. Kids are getting a sexuality education from the world around them, from you know, social media, gaming, pornography. And I say to them, we have to counterbalance that. So um, what are the other concerns they say? And 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 that this fear and negativity and some of the things I say to parents are, what words come to mind when you think about your child's journey through life, their sexuality journey? What, what do you envisage for this generation of children? And you can imagine the positive words I come up with, Mark. There's about 30 that, you know, we want respect and fun and joy and, and commitment and all these positive words. And I say to them, well, how are our children going to get that? They need to get that from you. Um, and just giving them the basics, they needed to know the basics that sexuality education, I hate the word sex. It's really unhelpful. It's about human sexuality. And I think I brought a lot of my human sexual and reproductive nursing to the table to take away this, like you know, I ask parents at parent sessions, what does sex mean? And they all say the deed, the act of doing it. And I say, doing what? And they say, well, penis in vagina, you know, heterosexual penis, vagina. And they say gender, so they mean male or female. Well, being male or female and penis, vagina, heterosexual intercourse is so limiting for what we know about human sexuality. So let's start with the basics, which is naming body parts accurately and shame-free when you're changing a nappy. You can have family names, but kids need to know the action actual accurate name so that they have a vocabulary to report if something's wrong or if someone's harming them. And then you can. there's a chronological order of what you teach kids, which I've put in the book, ages and stages, because there is actual sexual development and behaviour that's typically expected of age groups. And moving up to the older kids, one of those which I've put to parents as well, when do you think kids are going to have sexual experiences? Well, we know the average age in Australia of penis or penis and vagina or penis and anus sex is around 15 And I put those stats to parents and I say to them, what do you think of that? And half will say that's too young and that's surprising and half will say that's what I expected. But what it is is typically expected. Humans start sexually experimenting at around that age, always have, always will. They don't become sexual beings the day they turn 18 and get out of a school uniform. So you can see some of these things I say to parents they have just never thought of.
0: Yeah, Curly, curly and complex territory, all right. Sure is. So back to your writing process, I did notice that you had other maybe elements. You've got all this sort of content, but then you've got other, like self-reflection, for example, and other, I mean, it is arguably, it is still content, but they're more like um, they're informed maybe by education in that it's kind of checking in or, bringing the reader in to engage with the material, that sort of thing. So did you write a chapter at a time or did you write an outline for the whole thing? Or did you, what happened? Uh,
1: Let's call it a topic at a time. (laughs) Oh, yeah? Yeah, that we broke into chapters and we moved them around. There was a lot of discussion about which order things should go in. How did you, how do you mean, what? (laughs) Well, exactly what you're saying, that self-reflection, because I can imagine them reading it but having all these questions, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but if we tell kids this, there's so much I wanted to tell them all at once (laughs) to start with for that comfortability to learn the topic. So I have addressed a lot of the barriers, myths and fears to start with that was important so that then they could go on to read about each topic and understand the language that i will be using so for example diversity was quite early because i'll be using language in the book that's non-gendered as you can see i've and i wonder if most parents will even notice that <clears throat> excuse me that i've used non-gendered language so for example and 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 just language tips, like we always see written everywhere, the man puts the penis into the vagina, the man inserts it, the man places it there, the man pushes it there. Changing the language to the vagina accepts the penis mm. includes consent and says that two people are doing something equally with each other, and you can non-gender it saying the vagina accepts the penis.
0: Yeah, it's so totally intriguing. It's like passive language. And active language or that type of thing, you know, the I can't without going into the grammar, just like the what is the active sort of what is the noun, the doing thing in the sentence. And then I guess it's kind of how language is used to, well, I can't, I've got an idea, I'm just struggling to express it. It's sort of in the world, it reinforces this sort of concept. Or, but you know, arguably, it's a bit like advertising in a way. It's like, oh, but we're only reflecting what's in the world already. But mm. then, the very act of using that language reinforces a way of thinking, and it, and it, it spills out into the the kind of world again. And it's like, oh no, well, that's just normal. Or, Can I
1: give you another example? And teachers yeah, love sure, this. But. And we talk about nouns and all the things I don't know much about. <laughs> But, for example, good morning, boys and girls. Okay, so if you say good morning, grade five instead, you are including that gender-diverse child in their morning greeting mm. and the boys and girls won't even notice that you said grade five. The boys and girls won't even notice that you didn't say boy, good morning, boys and girls. Mm. But the gender-diverse child was included in that greeting, of good morning, grade five. They weren't excluded.
0: Yeah, it's really quite broad, inclusive language.
1: That we can use all the time. We can use the and and um, two, two types of language tips that I give teachers in a teacher session. One is using inclusive language like they um, and removing boys and girls as best you can. And people out there will say, well, you're removing men and women. Well, we're not. The whole world's for female and male, but we're being inclusive. The other one is to remove the term you and I. So when you're having these conversations, it doesn't personalise it. So you don't say to a class, when you get your period, when you go through puberty, because the kids just go red and hope the floor is going to f- swallow them up. And when the, the teacher says, well, what I do is I get pads and I put them in my underwear and when I have my period, you don't want to say that either because that's embarrassing. So we don't use those words. We say when people go through puberty, they yeah. might get periods, they can buy pads from the shop, this is yeah. how they would use them.
0: Yeah, I did notice the use of the word "people" and and person, and then what you're saying is like when one you wouldn't it's a bit old fashioned to say when one has their period, you you know that's a kind of a direct phrase really by saying when people go through their, you know whatever it is. So I didn't realise that, and I it's impressive that kind of it sort of takes the edge off. Um, as you say, the, I can well imagine it's kind of like the focus of that kind of arguably confronting lesson is all of a sudden made to feel like they're on the stage, whereas there's no need for that. You just use different lang- or slightly different language mm-hmm. and, and you're still getting the message across.
1: It's also gender inclusive so that you don't have to worry about what body and what gender. But We have to keep in mind teachers' actual own experience in regard to sex and sexuality, which when we have a child sexual abuse, I probably hadn't warned people, just a warning that I am going to mention. We might have to say that at the start. Oh, yeah? Just a warning about child sexual abuse rates. So the current rate in Australia is... um, over 25.7%. So lots of people have had experience of sexual violence and assault, so running a Respectful Relationships and Consent class can be difficult for the deliverer. So I work a lot with teachers about depersonalising that and managing um, the content so that we depersonalise it from the students and from the teacher um, so that it's sharing of information without sharing personal experiences. That's a way of keeping everybody safe. When you're talking about these topics because you need to because you've got 25 different values in front of you with your class plus your own um so we stick to facts when we're talking about it in the classroom whereas this book and parents they can add in their own values
0: you're listening to perspectives in parryville So it very is very interesting that you started off very early on with providing evidence, because evidence can be really reassuring, but then my mind then goes to the context of delivery. You know, who who are the readers? Some of the readers of this book are teachers, some are parents. And I mean, it's not always clear-cut that sort of territory. Who says what when and gets kind of cloudy. So what say ye about this sort of these ideas
1: (laughs) so it is a child's right human right to information about their bodies and about relationships so who's going to take that responsibility of delivering it it ultimately rests with parents and carers however best practice evidence tells us a whole school approach uh, and a whole community approach is best so what we want is evidence-based facts focused from school, from all years of um, schooling, backed up by facts and values from home. Now, there's countries in the world who do this very, very well, and the outcomes for their students, for their young people, are clear, the benefits, such as less sexually transmitted infections, less unintended pregnancies, um, they delay first sexual intercourse to a later age, less exposure to being, um, to exploitation, to violence and child sexual abuse. I'm starting to use the term neglect, Mark. I think that the evidence is so crystal clear that we should be delivering this information, both parents at, at home and at school. And when we don't, I actually think it's neglectful that we don't. And good Australian evidence tells us that over 90% of parents want these topics taught in schools. There's a small minority of very loud people at the moment. We're seeing an increase this year, a lot of dialogue coming from countries like the US, a lot of misinformation that can disrupt sexuality education, and some schools are fearful. I've had amazing experience by schools embracing this and saying to those parents, here's the evidence of why we do this. We do best practice global sexuality education, Please remove your child if you want to, but we will be continuing to, to deliver this content. So that's a big statement and a big thing, and I'm seeing schools doing that really, really well. Um, and teachers who deliver this content, they talk about how the students benefit, how they talk about respect, how they talk about consent. Um, the evidence is crystal clear. We just can't not.
0: So it's you've come a long way with the process of writing a book and, you know, it's clear what your aims are. But, I mean, we are it's almost like on a conveyor belt of time. We kind of – the world is constantly changing with social media, with Me Too, with, you know, pushback and objections and, you know, misinformation. The world is a a more complex place now than it was even six months ago and a year ago. So, you know, I guess – Everyone's experiencing a sense of overwhelm as well. I'm not sure I have a question in there, but I've kind of, you know, what What do you think about all this in terms of you, you as an author and a, a, the voice that you're giving to these sort of topics?
1: Imagine being a child in this overwhelming, ever-changing world, Mark. Imagine being, my whole focus is on kids needing they deserve a better outcome. They deserve a better um, journey through life. Uh, and that's based on education. It is it is preventable, the things that are happening to our young people. Uh, and it's ever-changing. And they are digital natives as well, which is a big, big disconnect from the teachers and the parents, where we knew a time without uh, online. And in the absence of good sex, sexuality, respectful relationship and consent education from home and the classroom, kids are learning every day from the world around them. And our rates of, we're currently, as we record, Mark, the rates of gender-based violence in Australia, of murders, um, of uh, sexual assaults amongst peers, so teenagers. So today, Mark, I've been talking about all sorts of ages. I've been chopping and changing from zero to 17. When I talk about children, I'm talking about 17 and under, and scaffolded information every year throughout their their journey in life uh, to prevent sexual violence but to enhance things like pleasure. We don't talk about pleasure. Parents are terrified about talking about pleasure. Pleasure is not a dirty word. How ironic.
0: How ironic. You're (laughs) terrified by pleasure.
1: Exactly. And nor is consent. Yet we can teach pleasure and consent in a non-sexual way to children. Children can learn about pleasurable foot massages and pleasurable... Um, experiences with their friends, and they need to learn about those so that they have those embedded, ready for those intimate, complex sexual encounters when they're older.
0: So, so and- what you're saying, if I can just clarify, oh. it's, mm. it taps into this whole, whole idea of something being age appropriate. It's kind of you can still talk about a topic for younger learners or younger younger audiences mm. in an appropriate way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's an appropriate way for all of it. And you just give them the simple messages and it'll go over their head if it's too much. Um, I can give you the example of how to explain the most common way that babies are made <laughs> that people worry about, because that's one of the biggest things that people are worried about. And I can tell you, I give an example of how we talk about it to children in the context of that it's only for adults. And we could think of this for every topic. Um, so, you know, lots of different ways the babies are created. If two people um, want to make a baby, um, a person with a penis and testicles and a person with a vagina and ovaries, they make a decision they want to make a baby, they talk a lot about it, they'll choose a private place and time, uh, they'll be enjoying each other's bodies, usually with no clothes on. ready When they're ready, the vagina will accept the penis, the penis will deliver the sperm and the sperm will travel up to meet the egg. Full stop. That's age appropriate. Now, most kids will say, great, can I have a biscuit, you know, if it goes over their head? But others will say that's weird, that's disgusting, why would they even think of doing that? And that's when you follow up with, of course you think like that because it's not for kids, it's for adult minds and bodies only. And adults actually like doing that. Um, It's a pleasurable thing, but it takes many, many years for minds and bodies to be ready for that. And so we need to learn about it over many years. And, And parents and adults and teachers struggle with the fact of saying, that adults like doing something like that. It's pleasurable. But that's what's missing. These teenagers, when I speak in universities, I say to those first years, raise the bar of your expectations of sexual and intimate encounters in your life. They should be fun, joyful, positive, pleasurable. They might be weird, smelly, awkward and, um, and unusual. However, they should not be regretful, painful or harmful. And that's the dialogue they're being fed by pornography, popular culture, song lyrics, advertising, um, social media and such big influences in the absence of this good information. So we have to talk about pleasurable, amazing, joyful, respectful partnerships till we're blue in the face from a very young age throughout their whole journey through life
0: yeah, it's almost like that topic is I don't know if the words being hijacked, but it's kind of like that all their attention is being misdirected almost, and then it's kind of opens up this whole reinterpretation of what what the message is or what that is even.
1: Absolutely. And with the absence of an alternative, this silence that they're getting about pleasure, because kids they say when when students, teenagers are asked, what do you want to learn? about what's wrong with your sexuality education, they say, we want to know how to have sex. We want to know what it is. Yet if recently that book, um, Welcome to Sex, there there was outrage in Australia about an accurate, amazing, wonderful, written by experts book that's an alternative to the pornography and everything. And a small number of people uh, just cause fear and danger in, in in society about it and it's sold out, thankfully, now because parents can see that it's actually... Uh, important that we give this information, uh, and 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 that we have to have resources. We can't cancel out accurate resources for young people.
0: Yeah, I like I very much like the spirit of education, the value of education, the value of resources. It's kind of like a really um, kind of considered, intelligent um, approach that taps into what what's the value of education and teaching. It's kind of like. You know, you you get to learn stuff. You get to navigate the world. You get to kind of, you know, the whole range of different benefits.
1: Um, Well, they deserve it, don't they? They deserve good information to be healthy, happy, and well, which is proven by getting this information. Well,
0: yeah, yeah. They kind of know that something is a thing and then they can make an informed choice or they can, or, you know, they kind of know, it's demystifies maybe the territory and uh, as you say with the the different um the statistics of um you know lower lower kind of unwanted pregnancies for example that kind of um the, the awareness of oh well, well yeah guess what this is this might happen if and so there's a kind of an awareness and then obviously the the young these young people are making considered choices well I'm, that's not for me or whatever. And then I guess what's the alternative, this sort of ignorance or not knowing stuff, um, where might that lead type thing?
1: Well, there's 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 regions now currently schools who are still in Australia who do abstinence only. So with that pregnancy thing, just don't have sex. But that doesn't work. We need to do harm minimisation. Here's what happens and how people can get pregnant. Oh, sorry, create a pregnancy because it takes two. Um, And here's how to uh, not do that, if that's your choice. And something new on the horizon that teachers aren't, aren't quite up with is sexting and sending nudes, for example. They see that as a sexual activity. We need to view it as a sexual activity. Now, there's laws around it and lots and lots of risks. But just saying don't do it, we know as teachers, that's not going to stop teenagers who are most of them are doing it from stopping doing it. So they need harm minimization strategies. There's people that disagree with me about that, but they need the laws as well as if you're going to do this, be aware. Your friend might grab your phone and share that photo before you get a chance. Is it locked down? You know, just basic things.
0: Yeah, I guess it's acknowledging that these these kind of everyday, what does it look like every day or, you know, in the world, as opposed to this really oversimplified version of, oh, you solve solved that problem by just ignoring it or just saying no or some other, I suppose, yeah. You know, It does get complex, which I I guess brings up the question again: Why did you write this book? What's the kind of driver? I know you kind of we talked about it very early on, Mm. but um, I guess it's kind of you know it's so complex and it's so um, there's a lot in this book that's really really useful. So I'm just kind of wondering, you know, what are what are you hoping will happen, or you know, what were your motivations?
1: Well, I've had so many parents give me feedback and thanking me for giving this, them this information. Just one the other day said to me, had I not seen your parent presentation when my children were two or three, I wouldn't have, they're 10 now, I would never have had the conversations I've had with them up to this point. And now my children know that I am their main person they can go to for information. I'm doing it for child safety. I'm doing it for child well-being, And I'm doing it for the parents as well, because there's plenty of parents out there not having very... Good journeys through life sexually. <laughs> it's never too late to learn. Um, and I think that human sexuality is at the heart of being human. It's, if we're talking about school education and school saying there's not enough time in the curriculum, there's not enough time in the curriculum, well, how can they even learn science and maths when their basics of puberty and human sexuality and respectful relationships isn't addressed? Because I know that that impacts their whole life. So I've written it. For the children to have um, a much better outcome in their journey through life, because they deserve it, and it is possible.
0: Mm. It, it, just uh, from one of the things that you just said, then is that a, it, do you get that kind of um, feedback and commentary that oh, there's not enough time in the curriculum to cover oh, this"? all
1: the time? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, if you think about the HPE curriculum, forty hours of in forty what is it? Forty lessons in a year, or whatever it is. Um,
0: yeah, and you've got L, all the
1: different- e, uh, what, Nutrition. What else? All the things. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah.
1: PE. All the, you know better than I do. I've forgotten them all. There's a massive list that's in HPE, and so is sexuality and respect for relationships and consent. Yeah, I mean, you might
0: have a week or something, or, you know, a, a, one lesson. It's all kind of boiled down to one lesson's worth.
1: And it, it could not be more important, in my opinion.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess it is the kind of- um, In a lot of ways, it's so central to- Existence. I mean, if, if it wasn't for this, um, the deed, humans would cease to exist in a way. It's kind of like central.
1: Um, that The deed, doing it, penis, vagina, heterosexual. Oh. So, so overrated <laughs> as far as what human sexuality is. It's important. Oh, God, now we spread another, another topic out of course. Brain and skin are the two most important sexual organs. <laughs> so, you know, I do have a whole lot of knowledge around um human sexual function. So even that pleasure and, and, for example, clitoris was left off anatomy lessons in schools. Um, I knew
0: that key term was going to enter this conversation yes. at some point. What can you tell <laughs> very, us about?
1: Well, it's very important. So the clitoris was misrepresented in even medical textbooks. Um, uh, in, in Up until 1950, it was left out of Gray's Anatomy Textbook uh, it's just one the only organ of the human body that's sole purpose is pleasure, and um, it's been misrepresented and missed out and not properly anatomically mo- um, modelled until 1993, 1998 from Helen O'Connell, who's a, a surgeon in Melbourne. And that's because we're too scared to talk about pleasure, so you can't leave out. I've had to add it into all my lessons and activities in classrooms, age appropriately, of course, Um because it just wasn't in them, so there's one example of just basics that half the population has that was just ignored, um, and most parents didn't know about it either. So I've been showing it at parent sessions, showing a puppet and a clitoral model at, at parent sessions. Hmm. And um,
0: how what's the response been like?
1: Uh, lots, well, back when I first started doing these about seven, eight years ago, people had never seen it before, but there's a lot more knowledge around it now. Um, but it's. I end the session with that, that we can talk about pleasure and to normalize it. That's just part of being human.
0: Yeah, it is interesting territory because it is the sort of the language, and then I know when I we were talking earlier, and I picked up the um, the kind of uh, biology textbook.
1: Yes. Yeah, so what was my question to you? Can you look up the clitoris in your nineteen? What is it? 1984? Oh, it was the 80s,
0: nineteen eighty-four. eighties. <laughs> nineteen. Is it littered
1: in the biology? Have a look oh, at it.
0: Wasn't
1: in there. No, not in there. No, missing. of course not. <laughs> missing pleasure that fifty percent of the population have. Yeah. So in the absence of all of that, um, cisgender heterosexual males are taught that they need to penetrate a vagina for best pleasurable outcome, but that isn't the most pleasurable outcome for a vulva vagina owner, uh, and that's missing in information. So, and it can be rectified just by educating without fear, shame danger Um, it's actually I say my tagline is let's get started it's easier than you think
0: in this episode I chatted with Vanessa Hamilton you can find more information about this episode in the show notes including a link to Vanessa's website talking the talk healthy sexuality education thank you for listening
1: to perspectives in Parryville